Have a Mystery to Solve by Enid Blyton Read by Anne Beach The famous five are Julian, Dick, George, Georgina by rights, Anne and Timmy the dog. A special note from Enid Blyton My readers will want to know if Whispering Island is real, set in the great blue harbour in the story. And if the little cottage on the hills is there still, and the golf course in the story, and Lucas, who tells the children about the island. Yes, the island is real, and lies in the great harbour, still full of whispering trees. The little cottage on the hills is still there, with its magnificent view and its old well, and Lucas can be found on the golf course, nut-brown and bright-eyed, telling stories of the animals and birds he loves so much. I have taken them all and put them into this book for you, as well as the friends you know so well, the famous five. Chapter One, Easter Holidays The nicest word in the English language is holidays, said Dick, helping himself to a large spoonful of marmalade. Pass the toast, Anne. Mother, do you feel downhearted to have us all tearing about the place again? Of course not, said his mother. The only thing that really worries me when holidays come is food. Food with a capital F. We never seem to have enough in the house when all three of you are back. And by the way, does anyone know what has happened to the sausages that were in the larder? Sausages, sausages, let me think, said Julian, frowning. Anne gave a sudden giggle. She knew quite well what had happened. Well, mother, you said we could get our own meal last night as you were out, said Julian. So uh, we poked about and decided on sausages. Yes, but Julian, two whole pounds of sausages, said his mother. I know Georgina came over to spend the evening, but even so. She bought Timmy, said Anne. He rather likes sausages too, mother. Well, that's the last time I leave the larder door unlocked when I go out, said her mother. Fancy cooking those lovely pork sausages for a dog, especially Timmy, with his enormous appetite. Really, Anne, I meant to have them for our lunch today. Well, we rather thought we'd go and spend the day at Kirin with George and Timmy, said Dick. That's if you don't want us for anything, mother. I do want you, said his mother. Mrs. Lehman is coming to tea, and she said she wants to see you about something. The three groaned, and Dick protested at once. Oh, mother, the first day of the holidays, and we have to be in to tea. It's too bad. A glorious spring day like this, too. Oh, we'll be in to tea, all right said Julian, giving Dick a sharp little kick under the table as he saw his mother's disappointed face. Mrs. Lehman's a nice old thing. She was always giving us little treats when we were little. And she never forgets our birthday, said Anne. Do you think we could ask George over too, with Timmy? George will be awfully disappointed if we aren't with her the first day of the halls. 
Yes, of course you can, said her mother. Go and ring her up now and arrange it. And don't forget to put our old Tibby cat into the shed with a saucer of milk. She's scared stiff of Timmy, he's so enormous. And please, all of you, try to look clean at tea time. I'll see to Dick and Anne, said Julian, with a grin. I must remember to find their overalls. I'm going to phone George now, this very minute, said Anne, getting up from the table. Do you mind, Mother? I've finished, and I'd like to catch George before she takes Tim for a walk, or does some shopping for Aunt Fanny. Uncle Quentin will be glad to be rid of George, even for a meal, said Dick. He fell over her lacrosse stick yesterday and wanted to know why she left her fishing net about. George didn't know what he was talking about. Poor old Georgina, said his mother. It's a pity that both she and her father have exactly the same hot tempers. Her mother must find it difficult to keep the peace. Ah, here's Anne back again. Did you get George on the phone, dear? Yes, she's thrilled, said Anne. She says it's just as well we're not going to spend the day with her because Uncle Quentin has lost some papers he was working on and he's turning the house upside down. George said she will probably be mad as a hatter by the time she arrives this afternoon. Uncle Quentin even made Aunt Fanny turn out her knitting bag to see if the papers were there. Dear old Quentin, said her mother. Such a truly brilliant scientist. Remembers every book he's ever read, every paper he's ever written. And has the finest brain I know. And yet loses some valuable paper or other almost every week. He loses something else every day of the week, too, said Dick with a grin. His temper, poor old George, she's always in some sort of trouble. Well, anyway, she's jolly glad to be coming over here, said Anne. She's biking over with Timmy. She'll be here for lunch. Is that all right, Mother? Of course, said her mother. Now, seeing that you had today's dinner for last night's supper, you'd better do a little shopping for me. What shall we have? Sausages, said everyone at once. I should have thought you were quite literally fed up with sausages after last night's feast, said their mother, laughing. All right, sausages. But Timmy can have a bone, a nice meaty bone. I am not going to buy any more sausages for him. That's quite certain. And shall we get some nice cakes for tea as Mrs Lehman is coming, said Anne? Or are you going to make some, mother? I'll make a few buns, said her mother, and you can choose whatever else you like, so long as you don't buy up the shop. The three went off shopping, cycling along the lane to the village. It was a truly lovely spring day. The celandines were golden in the ditches, and daisies were scattered everywhere. Dick burst into song as they went, and the cows in the nearby fields lifted their heads in surprise as Dick's loud voice swept round them. Anne laughed. It was good to be with her brothers again. She missed them very much when she was at school, and now they would have almost a whole month together with their cousin George, too. She was suddenly overwhelmed with joy and lifted up her voice and joined Dick in his singing. Her brothers looked at her with affection and amusement. Good old Anne, said Dick. You're such a quiet little mouse. It's nice to hear you singing so loudly. I am not a quiet little mouse, said Anne, surprised and rather hurt. Whatever makes you say that? You just wait. You may get a surprise one day. Yes, we may, said Julian, but I doubt it. A mouse can't suddenly turn into a tiger. Anyway, one tiger's enough. George is the tiger of our family. My word, she can put out her claws all right and roar and ramp and rave. Everyone laughed at the picture of George as a tiger. Dick wobbled as he laughed and his front wheel touched Anne's back wheel. She turned round fiercely. Look out, idiots! You nearly had me over! Can't you see where you're going? Be sensible, can't you?
Hey, Anne, whatever's the matter? said Julian, amazed to hear his gentle little sister lashing out so suddenly. Anne laughed. It's all right. I was just being a tiger for a moment, putting out my claws. I thought Dick and you might like to see them. Well, well, said Dick, riding beside her. I've never heard you yell like that before. Surprising, but quite pleasing. What about you showing old George your claws sometimes when she gets out of hand? Stop teasing, said Anne. Here's the butcher's. For goodness sake, go and get the sausages and be sensible. I'll go and buy the cakes. The baker's shop was full of new-made buns and cakes and smelt deliciously of homemade bread. Anne enjoyed herself choosing a vast selection. After all, she thought, there will be eight of us, counting Timmy, and if we're all hungry, cakes soon disappear. The boys were very pleased to see all the paper bags. Looks like a good tea today, said Dick. I hope the old lady, what's her name now? Layman, who's coming to tea today, has a good appetite. I wonder what she's going to tell us about. Did you buy a nice meaty bone for Timmy? asked Anne. He'll like that for his tea. We bought such a beauty that I'm pretty sure Mother will say it's good enough to make soup from, said Dick with a grin. So I'll keep it in my saddlebag till he comes. Dear old Tim, he deserves a jolly good bone. Best dog I ever knew. He's been on a lot of adventures with us, said Anne, bicycling beside the boys as the road was empty. And he seemed to enjoy them all. Yeah, so did we, said Dick. Well, who knows? An adventure may be lying in wait for us these holes, too. I seem to smell one in the air. You don't, said Anne. You're just making that up. I'd like a bit of peace after a hectic term at school. I worked jolly hard this last term. Well, you were top of your form and captain of games, so you deserve to have the kind of holiday you like, said Julian, proud of his young sister. And so you shall. Adventures are out. Do you hear that, Dick? We keep absolutely clear of them. So that's that. <laughs> Is it, Jew? <laughs> said Anne, laughing. Well, we'll see. Chapter Two A Visitor to Tea George and Timmy were waiting for Julian, Dick and Anne when they arrived home. Timmy was standing in the road, ears pricked, long tail waving. He went quite mad when he saw their bicycles rounding the corner and galloped towards them at top speed, barking madly, much to the horror of a baker's boy with a large basket. The boy disappeared into the nearest garden at top speed, yelling, My dog! My dog! Timmy tore past and forced the three to dismount, for they were afraid of knocking him over. Dear Timmy, said Anne, patting the excited dog, do put your tongue in. I'm sure it'll fall out some day. Timmy ran to each of them in turn, woofing in delight, licking everyone, and altogether behaving as if he hadn't seen them for a year. Now that's enough, old boy, said Dick, pushing him away and trying to mount his bicycle once more. After all, we did see you yesterday. Where's George? George had heard Timmy barking and had now run out into the road too. The three cycled up to her and she grinned happily at them. Hello, you've been shopping, I see. Shut up, barking, Timmy, you talk too much. Sorry you couldn't come over to Kirin Cottage, but I'm jolly glad you asked me to come to you. My father still hasn't found the papers he's lost, and honestly, our place is like a madhouse. Cupboards being turned out, even the kitchen store cupboard. And I left poor mother up in the loft looking there. Why fathers should think they might be there, I don't know. 
Poor old George. I can just see your father tearing his hair and shouting. And all the time he's probably put the papers into the waste paper basket by mistake, said Dick with a chuckle. Gracious! We never thought of that, said George. I'd better phone Mother at once and tell her to look. Bright idea of yours, Dick. Well, you go and phone and we'll put our bikes away, said Julian. Take your nose away from that bag of sausages, Timmy. You're in disgrace over sausages, let me tell you. You're suspected of eating too many last night. He did eat rather a lot, said George. I took my eye off him and he wolfed quite a few. I say, who's this Mrs Lehman who's coming to tea? Have we got to stay in and have tea with her? I hope we might be going off for a picnic this afternoon. Nothing doing, old thing, said Dick. Mrs Lehman is apparently coming to talk to us about something. So we have to be in, with clean hands, nice manners and everything. So behave yourself, George. George gave him a friendly punch. That's unfair, said Dick. You know I can't punch you back. My word, you should have seen Anne this morning, George. Yelled at me like a tiger howling and showed her teeth. Don't be an idiot, Dick, said Anne. He called me a mouse, George. He said we'd one tiger, you, and that was enough in the family. So I went for him and put out my claws for a moment and gave him such a surprise. I rather liked it. Good old Anne, said George, amused. But you're not really cut out to be a tiger and rage and roar, you know. I could be if I had to, said Anne obstinately. One of these days I'll surprise you all. You just wait. All right, we will, said Julian, putting his arm round his sister. Come on now, we'd better get indoors before Timmy gets some of the cakes out of the bags. Stop licking that bag, Tim. You'll make a hole in it. He can smell the cherry buns inside, said Anne. Shall I give him one? No, said Julian. Cherry buns are wasted on him, you know that. Don't you remember how he chews the bun part and spits out the cherries? Oh, said Timmy, exactly as if he agreed. He went to sniff at the bag with his bone inside. That's your dinner, Tim, said Anne. Plenty of meat on it, too. Look, there's Mother at the window, beckoning. I expect she wants the sausages. No, Timmy, the sausages are not for you. Get down. Good gracious, I never in my life knew such a hungry dog. Anybody would think you starved him, George. Well, they'd think wrong then, said George. Timmy, come to heel. Timmy came, still looking round longingly at the various bags that the others were now taking from their saddlebags. They all went indoors and deposited the goods on the kitchen table. The cook opened the bags and looked inside, keeping a sharp eye on Timmy. Better take that dog of yours out of my kitchen, she said. Funny how sausages always disappear when he's around. Now get down now. Take your paws off my clean table. Timmy trotted out of the kitchen. He thought it was a pity that cooks didn't like him. He liked them very much indeed. They always smelled so deliciously of cooking, and there were always so many tidbits around which he longed for, but was seldom offered. Ah, oh, well... He'd trot into the kitchen again when Cookie had gone upstairs for something. He might perhaps find a few bits and pieces on the floor then. Hello, Georgina, dear, said her aunt, coming into the kitchen. Timmy following her in delight. Timmy, go out of the kitchen. I don't trust you within a mile of sausages. Come on, shoo! Timmy shooed. He liked Anne's mother, but knew that when she said shoo, she meant it. He lay down on a rug in the living room with a heavy sigh, wondering how long it would be before he had that lovely meaty bone. He put his head on his paws and kept his ears pricked for George. 
he thought it most unfair that George shouldn't be shooed out of the kitchen too. Now, for goodness sake, keep out of my way while I cook the lunch, said Cook to the children milling round her kitchen. And shut the door, please. I don't want that great hungry dog sniffing round me all the time, making out he's starving when he's as fat as butter. He's not, said George indignantly. Timmy has never been fat in his life. He's not that kind of dog. He's never greedy. Well, he must be the first dog ever born that wasn't greedy, said Cookie. Can't trust any of them. There was that pug dog of Mrs Lane's, crunched up lumps of sugar whenever it could reach a sugar bowl. And that fat poodle next door came and knocked over the cream that the milkman left outside the back door. Deliberately knocked it over, mark you. And then licked up every drop. Or his mistress tried to make out he didn't like cream. <laughs> but you should have seen his nose covered in cream up to his eyes. Timmy looked in at the kitchen door, his nose in the air, for all the world as if he were deeply offended at Cookie's remarks. Julian laughed. You've wounded his pride, Cookie, he said. I'll wound him somewhere else too if he comes sniffing round me when I'm cooking, said Cookie. That made George give one of her scowls, but the others couldn't help laughing. The morning went very pleasantly. The five went down to the beach and walked around the high cliffs, enjoying the stiff breeze that blew in their faces. Timmy raced after every seagull that dared to sit on the smooth sand, annoyed that each one rose up lazily on great wings as soon as he almost reached it. They were all hungry for their dinner, and not one single morsel was left when they'd finished. Cookie had made a tremendous steam pudding with lashings of treacle, which was, as usual, a huge success. Wish I had a tongue like Timmy's and could lick up the lovely treacle left on the bottom of the dish, said George. Such a waste. You certainly won't be able to eat any tea, I'm sure of that, said her aunt. But of course she was wrong. When tea time came, they all felt quite ready for it and were most impatient when Mrs Lehman was late. The tea looked lovely, laid on a big table over a white lace cloth. The children sat and looked at it longingly. When would Mrs Lehman arrive? I begin to feel I'm not going to like Mrs Lehman, said George at last. I can't bear looking at those cream cakes when I'm hungry. The front doorbell rang. Hurrah! Then in came a cheerful, smiling old lady, nodding to everyone, very pleased to see such a nice little party waiting for her. This is Mrs Lehman, children, said Julian's mother. Sit down, Mrs Lehman, we're delighted to have you. Well, I've come to ask the children something, said Mrs Lehman. But we'll have tea first. And then I'll say what I've come to say. My, my, what a wonderful tea. I'm glad I feel hungry. Everyone else was hungry too, and soon the bread and butter, the sandwiches, the buns, the cakes and everything else disappeared. Timmy sat quietly by George, who slipped him a tidbit now and again, when no one was looking. Mrs Lehman chatted away. She was a most interesting person, and the children liked her very much. Well, now, she said when tea was finished, I'm sure you must be wanting to know why I asked to come to tea today. I wanted to ask your mother, Julian, if there was any chance of you three and this other boy here, what's his name? George. Would you like to help me out of a difficulty? Nobody pointed out that George was a girl, 
not a boy, and that George was short for Georgina. George, as usual, was pleased to be taken for a boy. They all looked at Mrs. Lehman, listening to her with interest. It's like this, she said. I've a dear little house up on the hills overlooking the harbour, and I've a grandson staying with me there, Wilfred. Well, I have to go and look after a cousin of mine who's ill, and Wilfred can't bear to be left alone. I just wondered if your mother would allow you children to share the little house with Wilfred, and, well, keep him company. He feels a bit scary being on his own. I've a good woman there who comes in to cook and clean. But poor Wilfred's really scared of being in such a lonely place high up on the hill. You mean that lovely little house with the wonderful view? said Julian's mother. Yes, it's rather primitive in some ways. No water laid on, only just a well to use, and no electricity or gas, just candles or an oil lamp. Maybe it sounds too old-fashioned for words, but honestly, the view makes up for it. Perhaps the children would like to come over and see it before they decide. Mrs. Lehman looked earnestly round at everyone, and nobody knew quite what to say. Well, we'll certainly come and see it, said Julian's mother, and if the children feel like it, well, they can stay there. They do like being on their own, of course. Yes, said Julian, we'll come and see it, Mrs. Lehman. Mother's going to be busy with the bazaar soon. She'll be glad to get us out of the way. And, of course, we do like being on our own. Mrs. Lehman looked extremely pleased. Tomorrow, then, she said. About ten o'clock. You love the view. Wonderful, wonderful. You can see right over the great harbour for miles around. Well, I must be going now. I'll tell Wilfred you children may be keeping him company. He's such a nice lad, so helpful. You love him. Julian had his doubts about the nice, helpful Wilfred. He even wondered if Mrs. Lehman wanted to get away from Wilfred and leave him to himself. No, that was too silly. Anyway, they'd soon see what the place was like tomorrow. It would be fun to be on our own again, said George, when Mrs. Lehman had gone. I don't expect this Wilfred would be any bother. He's probably just a silly kid, scared of being left alone. Though apparently there is a woman there. Well, we'll go tomorrow. Maybe the view will make up for dear Wilfred. Chapter 3 The Cottage on the Hill and Wilfred Next day, the children prepared to go and see the cottage belonging to Mrs. Lehman. You coming too, Mother? asked Julian. We'd like your advice. Well, no, dear, said his mother. I've rather a lot to do. There's a meeting on at the village hall, and I promised to go to it. You're full of good works, mother, said Julian, giving her a hug. All right, we'll go by ourselves. I dare say we shall know at once whether we'd like to stay in the cottage or not. Also, we must know what this Wilfred is like. It's a quarter to ten, and George is already here with Timmy. I'll call the others, and we'll get our bikes. Soon the four were on their bicycles, with Timmy as usual running alongside, his long tongue out, his eyes bright and happy. This was Timmy's idea of perfect happiness, to be with the four children all day long. They went along a road that ran on the top of a hill. They swung round a corner, and there, spread far below them, with a great sea vista that included a wonderful harbour, filled with big and little ships, the sea was as Blue as the Mediterranean, quite breathtaking. Anne jumped off her bicycle at once. 
I must just feast my eyes on all this before I go a yard further, she said. What a panorama! What miles of sea and sky! She put her bicycle against a gate and then climbed over and stood by herself. Gazing down at the view, Dick joined her. Then suddenly, a voice shouted loudly, Four! Four! A small white thing came whizzing through the air and landed just by Anne's foot. She jumped in surprise. It's a golf ball, said Dick. No, don't pick it up. Whoever's playing with it has to come and hit it from exactly where it fell. Good thing you weren't hit, Anne. I didn't realise that this gate led onto a golf course. We ought to have a walk over it, said Anne. Just look at those gorse bushes over there, absolutely flaming with yellow blossom, and all the tiny flowers springing up everywhere. Speedwell and coltsfoot and daisies and celandines, beautiful. And oh, what a view! Yes, and if Mrs. Lehman's cottage has a view anything like this, I'd certainly like to stay there, said Dick. Think of getting out of bed in the morning and seeing this enormous view out of the window, the harbour, the sea beyond, the hills all round, the great spread of sky. You ought to be a poet, Dick, said Anne in surprise. The golfers came up at that moment, and the children stood aside and watched one of them address the ball, and then strike it easily and strongly. The ball soared through the air and landed far away on a smooth green fairway. Good shot, said the man's partner, and the two sauntered off together. Funny game, really, said Anne, just hitting a ball all round the course. Wish I had some clubs, said Dick. I'm sure I could hit some smashing shots. Well, if that cottage is anywhere near the golf course, perhaps you could pay to have a lesson, said Anne. I bet you could hit a ball as far as that man. The others were now yelling for them to come back, so they went to fetch their bicycles. Soon they were all riding along the road again. We have to look for a small white gate with Hill Cottage painted on it, said George, on the hillside facing the sea. There it is, cried Anne. We'll pile our bicycles together against the hedge and go in at the gate. They left their bicycles in a heap and went through the gate. Not far to the left stood a funny old cottage. It's back to them, its front looking down the steep hill that ran towards the great harbour and the sea beyond. It's like a cottage out of an old fairy tale, said Anne. Funny little chimneys, rather crooked walls, a thatched roof, all uneven. And what tiny windows! They walked down a little winding path that led to the cottage. They soon came to a well and leaned over it to see the water deep down. So that's the water we'd have to drink, said Anne, wrinkling up her nose. We'd have to let down the bucket by winding this handle, and down it would go on the rope. Do you suppose the water is pure? Well, seeing that people must have drunk it for years on end, the ones living in that cottage anyway, I should imagine it's all right, said Julian. Come on, let's find the front door of the cottage, if it has one. It had one wooden door, hung rather crooked, with an old brass knocker. It faced down the hill and was flanked on each side by small windows. Two other small windows were above. Julian looked at them. The bedrooms would be very small, he thought. Would there really be room for them all? He knocked at the door. Nobody came to open it. He knocked again, and then looked for a bell, but there wasn't one. 
See if the door is unlocked, said Anne. So Julian turned the handle, and at once the door gave under his hand. It opened straight into a room that looked like a kitchen living room. Julian gave a shout. Anyone at home? There was no answer. Well, as this is obviously the cottage we were meant to see, we'd better go in, said Julian, and in they all went. It was old, very old. The carved wooden furniture was old too. Ancient oil lamps stood on two tables in the room, and in a recess there was an oil stove with a saucepan on top. A narrow, crooked stairway made of wood curved up to the floor above. Julian went up and found himself in a long, darkish room, its roof thatched with reed and held up by black beams. This place must be hundreds of years old, he called down to the others. I don't think it's big enough for us four and the others too. The cook and that boy called Wilfred. Just as he finished calling down the stairs, the front door was flung open and someone came in. What are you doing here? he shouted. This is my cottage. Julian went quickly down the stairs and there, facing them all, stood a boy of about ten, a scowl on his brown face. Uh, are you Wilfred by any chance? asked Dick politely. Yes, I am, and who are you? Where's my aunt? She'll soon chuck you out, said the boy. Is your aunt Mrs. Lehman? asked Julian. If so, she asked us to come and see her cottage and decided if we'd like to keep you company. She said she had to go away and look after a sick friend. Well, I don't want you, said the boy, so clear off. I'm all right here alone. My aunt's a nuisance, always fussing round. I thought there was a cook too, said Julian. Where is she? She only comes in the morning and I sent her off, said Wilfred. She left me some food. I want to be alone. I don't want you, so clear off. Don't be a fathead, Wilfred, said Julian. You can't live all alone here. You're just a kid. I shan't be living all alone. I've plenty of friends, said Wilfred defiantly. You can't have plenty of friends here in this lonely place, with only the hills and sky around you, said Dick. Well, I have, said Wilfred, and here's one, so look out. And to the horror of the two girls, he put his hand into his pocket and brought out a snake. Anne screamed and tried to hide behind Julian. Wilfred saw her fright and came towards her, holding the snake by its middle, so it swayed to and fro, its bright little eyes gleaming. Don't be scared, Anne, said Julian. It's only a harmless grass snake. Put the creature back into your pocket, Wilfred, and don't play the fool. If that snake is the only friend you have, you'll be pretty lonely here by yourself. I've plenty of friends, I tell you, shouted Wilfred. "'stuffing the snake back into his pocket. "'I'll hit you if you don't believe me.' "'Oh, no, you won't,' said Dick. "'Just show us your other friends. "'If they're kids like you, it's just too bad.' "'Kids? I don't make friends with kids,' said Wilfred scornfully. "'I'll show you I'm speaking the truth. "'Come out here on the hillside and see some of my other friends.' "'They all trooped out of the little cottage onto the hillside, "'amazed at this fierce, strange boy.' When they were in the open, they saw that he had eyes as bright blue as the speedwell in the grass and hair almost as yellow as the celandines. Sit down and keep quiet, he ordered. Over there, by that bush, and don't move a finger. I'll soon make you believe in my friends. How dare you come here doubting my word? They all sat down obediently beside the gorse bush, puzzled and rather amused.
The boy sat down too, and drew something out of his pocket. What was it? George tried to see, but it was half hidden in his right hand. He put it to his mouth, and began to whistle. It was a soft, weird whistle that grew loud and then died away again. There was no tune, no melody, just a kind of beautiful dirge that pulled at the heart. Sad, thought Anne, such a sad little tune, if you could call it a tune. Something stirred a little way down the hill, and then, to everyone's astonishment, an animal appeared, a hare. Its great ears stood upright. Its big eyes stared straight at the boy with the curious little pipe. Then the hare lolloped right up to Wilfred and began to dance. Soon another came, but this one only watched. The first one then seemed to go mad and leapt about wildly, utterly unafraid. The tune changed a little, and a rabbit appeared. Then another and another. One came to Wilfred's feet and sniffed at them, its whiskers quivering. Then it lay down against the boy's foot. A bird flew down, a beautiful magpie. It stood nearby watching the hare, fascinated. It took no notice of the children at all. They all held their breath, amazed and delighted. And then Timmy gave a little growl, deep down in his throat. He didn't really mean to, but he just couldn't help it. At once the hares, the rabbits and the magpie fled, the magpie squawking in fright. Wilfred faced round at once, his eyes blazing. He lifted his hand to strike Timmy, but George caught his fist at once. Let go, yelled Wilfred. That dog scared my friends. I'll get a stick and whip him. He's the worst dog in the world. He's... And then something strange happened. Timmy came gently over to Wilfred, lay down and put his head on the angry boy's knee, looking up at him lovingly. The boy, his hand still raised to strike, lowered it and fondled Timmy's head, making a curious crooning noise. Timmy, come here, ordered George, amazed and angry, to think that her dog, her very own dog, should go to a boy who had been about to strike him. Timmy stood up and gave Wilfred a lick and went to George. The boy watched him and then spoke to them all. You can come and stay in my cottage, he said, if you'll bring that dog too. There aren't many dogs like him. He's a wonderful dog. I'd like him for one of my friends. Then without another word, Wilfred sprang up and ran away down the hill, leaving four most astonished people and a dog who whined dismally because the boy had gone. Well, well, Timmy, there must indeed be something about that boy. If you stand looking after him as if you had lost one of your very best friends. Chapter 4 Settling In The five stared after Wilfred in silence. Timmy wagged his tail and whined. He wanted the boy to come back. Well, thank you, Timmy, old thing, said Anne, patting the big dog on the head. We certainly wouldn't have had this lovely little cottage with its incredible view if you hadn't made friends with Wilfred. What a funny boy he is. Jolly queer, I think, said George, still amazed at the way that Timmy had gone to Wilfred when the boy had been about to strike him. 
I'm not sure that I like him. Don't be an ass, George, said Dick, who had been very much impressed by the boy's handling of the hares, the rabbits and the magpie. That boy must have a wonderful love of animals. They would never come to him as they did if they didn't trust him absolutely. Anyone who loves animals as he does must be pretty decent. I bet I could make them come to me if I had that pipe, said George, making up her mind to borrow it if she could. Anne went back into the cottage. She was delighted with it. It must be very, very old, she thought. It stands dreaming here all day long, full of memories of the people who have lived here and loved it. And how they must all have loved this view. Miles and miles of heather, great stretches of sea, and the biggest, highest, widest sky I've ever seen. It's a happy place. Even the clouds seem happy. They're scurrying along so white against the blue. She explored the cottage thoroughly. She decided that the room above, under the thatch, should be for the three boys. There were two mattresses, one small, one larger. The little one for Wilfred, the big one for Dick and Julian, she thought. And I and George can sleep down in the living room, with Tim on guard. I wonder if there are any rugs we could sleep on. Oh, wait a bit. This couch is a pull-out bed. Just right for us two girls, good. Anne enjoyed herself thoroughly. This was the kind of problem she liked, fixing up this and that for the others. She found a little larder facing north. It had a few tins in it and a jug of milk slightly sour. It also had two loaves of extremely stale bread and a tin of rather hard cakes. Mrs. Lehman doesn't seem to be a very good housekeeper for herself and Wilfred, thought Anne seriously. We'll have to go down to the village and put in a stock of decent food. I might get a small ham. The boys would like that. Goodness, this is going to be fun. Julian came to the door to see what she was doing. When he saw her happy, serious face, he chuckled. Acting mother to us as usual, he said, deciding who's going to sleep where and which of us is to do the shopping and which the washing up, dear old Anne. What should we do without you when we go off on our own? I love it, said Anne happily. Julian, we need another rug or two and a pillow and some food and, um... Well, we'll have to go back home and collect a few clothes and other things, said Julian. We can shop on the way back and get whatever we want. I wonder if that woman Mrs. Lehman spoke about would be coming in to help. Well, Wilfred said he sent her off, said Anne. And I think perhaps as the cottage is so small, it might be better if we managed it ourselves. I think I could do a bit of cooking on that oil stove in the corner. And anyway, we can pretty well live on cold stuff, you know. Ham and salad and potted meat and fruit. It would be easy enough for any of us to pop down to the village on our bikes to fetch anything we needed. Listen said Julian, cocking his head to one side. Is that somebody calling us? Yes, it was. When Julian went outside, he saw Mrs. Lehman at the gate that led to the hillside where the cottage stood. He went over to her. We love the cottage, he said, and if it's all right, we'd like to move in today. We can easily pop home and bring back anything we want. It's a glorious old place, isn't it? And the view must be the finest anywhere. Well, that harbour is the second biggest stretch of water in the whole world, said Mrs. Lehman. The only stretch that is any bigger is Sydney Harbour. So you have something to feast your eyes on, Julian. My word, yes, said Julian. It's amazing and so very blue. I only wish I could paint, but I can't. At least, not very well. What about Wilfred? 
said Mrs. Lehman anxiously. Is he behaving himself? He's... Well, he's rather a difficult boy at times, and he can be very rude. He hasn't any brothers to rub off his awkward corners, you see. Oh, don't you worry about Wilfred, said Julian cheerfully. He'll have to toe the line and do as he's told. We all do our bit when we're away together. He's a wonder with animals, isn't he? Well, yes, I suppose he is, said Mrs. Lehman. Though I can't say I like pet snakes or pet beetles and owls that come and hoot down the chimney at night to find out if Wilfred will go out and hoot back to them. Julian laughed. We shan't mind that, he said. And he's managed to get over what might have been our biggest difficulty. He's made friends with our dog, Timmy. In fact, he informed us that if Timmy stayed, we could all stay. But only if Timmy stayed. Mrs. Lehman laughed. That's so like Wilfred, she said. He's an odd boy. Don't stand any nonsense from him. We shan't, said Julian cheerfully. I'm surprised he wants to stay on with us, actually. I should have thought he would rather go home than be with a lot of strangers. He can't go home, said Mrs. Lehman. His sister has measles, and his mother doesn't want Wilfred to catch it. So you'll have to put up with him, I fear. And he'll have to put up with us, said Julian. Thanks very much for letting us have the cottage, Mrs. Lehman. We'll take great care of everything. I know you will, said the old lady. Well, goodbye, Julian. Have a good time. I'll get back to my car now. Give Wilfred my love. I hope he doesn't fill the cottage with animals of all kinds. We shan't mind if he does, said Julian, and waited politely until Mrs. Lehman had disappeared and he could hear the noise of a car starting up. He went back to the cottage and stood outside, looking down at the amazing view. The harbour was full of boats, big and little. A steamer went busily along, making for a great seaside town far away on the other side. Anne came to join Julian. Glorious, isn't it? she said. We're so very high up here that it seems as if we can see half the world at our feet. Is that an island in the middle of the harbour, too? Yes, and a well-wooded one, too, said Julian. I wonder what it's called and who lives there. I can't see a single house there, can you? Dick called to Anne. Anne, George and I are going to fetch our bikes and ride down to the village. Give us your shopping list, will you? Julian, is there anything special you want us to pack for you at home and bring back besides your night things and a change of clothes? Yes, don't go off yet, called Julian, hurrying into the cottage. I've made a list somewhere. I think I'd better go with you. There'll be food and other things to bring back, unless Mother would bring everything up by car this afternoon. Yes, that's a good idea, said Dick. We'll go to Kieran Cottage first and get George's things, and then home to get ours. I'll leave all the shopping with Mother and all our luggage so that she can pop up here in the car with it. She'll love the view. I'll stay behind and tidy up the cottage and find out how the stove works, said Anne happily. I'll have everything neat and tidy by the time Mother comes this afternoon, Dick. Oh, here's Julian with the list. Why don't you go off on your bike with George and Dick, Julian? I'll be quite happy here, messing about. Yes, I'm going to, said Julian, putting his list into his pocket. Look after yourself, Anne. We'll take Timmy with us to give him a run. Off went the three, Timmy loping behind, very glad of the run. Anne waited till they were out of sight, then went happily back to the cottage. She was almost there when she heard someone calling her. She turned and saw a fresh-faced woman waving. 
I'm Sally, she called. Do you want any help with the cooking and cleaning? Wilfred told me not to come any more, but if you want me, I will. Oh, I think we can manage, Sally, said Anne. There's so many of us now, we can do all the jobs. Did you sleep here? Oh, no, miss, said Sally, coming up. I just came in to help and then went back home. You tell me if you want me any time and I'll gladly come. Where's that monkey of a Wilfred? He spoke to me very rudely this morning, the young varmint. I'll tell his grandmother of him. Not that that's much good. He just laughs at her. Don't you stand any nonsense from him. I won't, said Anne, smiling. Where do you live, in case we do want you? Just the other side of the road. In the small wood there, said Sally. You'll see my tiny cottage when you go by the wood on your bikes. She disappeared up the hill and across the road there. Anne went back happily to her household tasks. She cleaned out the little larder and then found a pail and went to the well. She hung the pail on the hook at the end of the rope and then worked the old handle that let the pail down to the water, swinging on the rope. Splash! It was soon full and Anne wound it up again. The water looked crystal clear and was as cold as ice. But all the same, Anne wondered if she ought to boil it. Someone came quietly behind her and jumped at her with a loud howl. Anne dropped the pail of water and gave a scream. Then she saw it was Wilfred, dancing round her, grinning. Idiot, she said. Now you just go and get some more water. Where's that big dog? demanded Wilfred, looking all round. I can't see him. You can't any of you stay here unless you have that dog. I like him. He's a wonderful dog. He's gone down to the village with the others, said Anne. Now will you please pick up that pail and get more water? No, I won't, said Wilfred. I'm not your servant. Get it yourself. Very well, I will. But I'll tell George, who owns Timmy, how rude you are. And you may be quite sure that Timmy won't be friends with you, said Anne, picking up the pail. I'll get the water, I'll get the water shouted Wilfred, and snatched the pail. Don't you dare to tell George or Timmy tales of me. Don't you dare. And off he went to the well and filled the pail. Well, what a time they were all going to have with such a very peculiar boy. Anne didn't like him at all. Chapter 5 Wilfred is most annoying... And Anne is most surprising. Wilfred brought back the pail to Anne and dumped it down. Like to see my pet beetles, he said. No, thank you, said Anne. I don't like beetles very much. Well, you ought to, said Wilfred. I've two very beautiful ones. You can hold them if you like. Their tiny feet feel very queer when they walk all over your hand. I don't mind beetles. But I don't want them walking over my hand, said poor Anne, who really was a bit afraid of what she called creepy-crawly things. Do get out of my way, Wilfred. If you had any manners, you'd carry that pail indoors for me. I haven't any manners, said Wilfred. Everybody tells me that. Anyway, I don't want to carry your pail, if you don't want to see my beetles. Oh, go away, said Anne, exasperated, picking up the pail herself. Wilfred went to a little thick bush and sat down by it. He put his face almost on the grass. 
and looked under the bush. Anne felt uncomfortable. Was he going to call his beetles out? She couldn't help putting down her pail and standing still to watch. No beetles came out from under the bush, but something else did. A very large, awkward-looking toad came crawling out and sat there, looking up at Wilfred with the greatest friendliness. Anne was amazed. How did Wilfred know the toad was there? And why in the world should it come out to see him? She stood and stared and shivered, because she really did not like toads. I know they have beautiful eyes and are intelligent and eat all kinds of harmful insects, but I just can't go near one, she thought. Oh, goodness, Wilfred's tickling its back, and it's scratching where he's tickled it, just like we would. Come and say how do you do to my pet toad, called Wilfred. I'll carry a pail for you then. Anne picked up her pail in a hurry, afraid that Wilfred might whistle up a few snakes next. What a boy! How she wished the others would come back! Why, Wilfred might own a boa constrictor, or have a small crocodile somewhere, or... Oh, but no, she was being silly. If only the others would come back! To her horror, the toad crawled right onto Wilfred's hand and looked up at him out of its really beautiful eyes. This was too much for Anne. She fled into the cottage, spilling half the water as she went. I wish I was like George, she thought. She wouldn't really mind that toad. I'm silly. I ought to try and like all creatures. Oh, my goodness! Look at that enormous spider in the corner of the sink! It's sitting there, looking at me out of its eight eyes. Wilfred, Wilfred, please come and get this spider out of the sink for me. Wilfred sauntered in, fortunately without the toad. He held his hand out to the spider and made a curious clicking, ticking noise. The spider perked up at once, waved two curious little antennae about and crawled across the sink to Wilfred's hand. Anne shuddered. She simply couldn't help it. She shut her eyes and when she opened them, the spider had gone, and so had Wilfred. I suppose he's now teaching it to dance or something, she thought, trying to make herself smile. I can't think how insects and animals and birds like him. I simply can't bear him. If I were a rabbit or bird or beetle, I'd run miles away from him. What's this curious attraction he has for creatures of all kinds? Wilfred had completely disappeared and Anne thankfully went on with her little jobs. I'll tidy up the loft where the boys will sleep, she thought. I'll wash this living room floor. I'll make a list of the things in the larder. I'll clean that dirty window over there. I'll... Good gracious, what's that noise? It was the sound of magpies chattering noisily. A harsh but pleasant noise. Anne peered out of the little cottage window. Well, what a sight! There stood Wilfred in front of the window, a magpie on each outstretched hand and one on the top of his head. It stood there, chattering loudly, and then turned round and round, getting its feet mixed up in the boy's thick hair. "'Come out here, and I'll tell one of my magpies to sit on your head, too,' shouted Wilfred. "'It's such a nice feeling. Would you like a young rabbit to cuddle? I can call one for you with my little pipe.' I don't want a magpie on my head, said Anne desperately. For goodness sake, get a nice little baby rabbit. I'd like that. Wilfred jerked the magpies off his hands and shook his head violently, so that the third one flew up. 
squawking cheerfully. He then sat down and pulled out his queer little whistle pipe, as Anne called it. She watched, fascinated, as the strange little dirge-like tune came to her ears. She found her feet walking to the door. Good gracious! Could there be some peculiar kind of magic in that pipe that made her go to Wilfred, just as the other creatures did? She stopped at the door, just as a baby rabbit came lolloping round a tall clump of grass. It was the funniest, roundest, dearest little thing, with a tiny bobtail and big ears. It went straight to Wilfred and nestled against him. The boy stroked it and murmured to it. Then he called to Anne softly. Well, here's the baby rabbit you asked for. Like to come and stroke it. Anne went softly over the grass, expecting the rabbit to bolt at once. Wilfred continued to fondle it, and the little thing looked at him with big, unwinking eyes. Anne bent down to stroke it, but immediately it leapt in fright and fled into the grass. Oh dear, why did it do that? said Anne, disappointed. It was quite all right with you. Wilfred, how do you get all these creatures to come to you? Shan't tell you, said Wilfred, getting up. Is there anything to eat in the cottage? I'm hungry. He pushed Anne aside and went into the cottage. He opened the larder door and took down a tin. There was a cake inside and he cut off a huge piece. He didn't offer Anne any. Couldn't you have cut me a piece too, said Anne. You really are a rude boy. I like being rude said Wilfred, munching his cake, especially to people who come to my cottage when I don't want them. Oh, don't be so silly, said Anne, exasperated. It isn't your cottage. It belongs to your grandmother. She told us so. Anyway, you said we could stay if Timmy stayed too. I'll soon make Timmy my dog, said Wilfred, taking another bite. You'll see. Sonny won't want that girl George any more, and he'll follow at my heels all day and night. You'll see. Anne laughed scornfully. Timmy following at this boy's heels? That could never happen. Timmy loved George with all his doggy heart. He would never desert her for Wilfred, no matter how much he whistled on pipes or put on his special croony voice. Anne was absolutely certain of that. If you laugh at me, I'll call up my grass snake and my adder, said Wilfred fiercely. Then you'll run for miles. Oh, no, I won't, said Anne, hurrying into the cottage. Just watch yourself run. She picked up a pail of water, went out with it, and threw it all over the astonished Wilfred. Somebody else was most astonished, too, and that was Julian, who had arrived back before the others, anxious not to leave Anne alone in the cottage for too long. He came just in time to see Anne drenching Wilfred, and stared in utmost amazement. Anne behaving like that? Anne looking really fierce, quiet, peaceful Anne. What in the world had happened? Anne, he called, what's the matter? What's Wilfred been doing? Oh, Julian, said Anne, glad to see him, but horrified that he had come just then. Wilfred was drenched from head to foot. He stood there gasping, taken aback, bewildered. Why, Anne had seemed such a quiet, frightened little thing, scared even of a spider. That girl, said Wilfred, half choking, shaking the water off himself, that bad, wicked girl, she's like a tiger. She sprang at me and threw the water all over me. I won't let her stay in my cottage. 
The boy was so angry, so wet, so taken aback that Julian had to laugh. He roared in delight and clapped Anne on the back. The mouse has turned into a tiger. Well, you said you might one day, Anne, and you haven't lost much time. Let me see if you've grown claws. He took Anne's hands and pretended to examine her nails. Anne was half laughing, half crying now, and pulled her hand away. Oh, Julian, I shouldn't have soaked Wilfred, but he was so irritating. I lost my temper. And all right, all right, it's quite a good thing to do sometimes," said Julian. "And I bet young Wilfred deserved all he got. I only hope the water was icy cold. Have you a change of clothes here, Wilfred? Go and get into them then." The boy stood there, dripping wet, and made no effort to obey. Julian spoke again. "You heard what I said, Wilfred. Jump to it. Go and change." The boy looked so wet and miserable that Anne felt suddenly sorry for what she had done. She ran to him and felt his wet shoulders. "Oh, I'm sorry," she said. "I truly am. I don't know why I turned into a tiger so suddenly." Wilfred gave a little half laugh, half sob. <laughs> "I'm sorry too," he mumbled. "You're nice, and your nose is like that baby rabbit's. It's, it's a bit waffly." <laughs> he ran into the cottage and slammed the door. "Let him be for a while," said Julian, seeing that Anne made a move to go after him. "This will do him good." Nothing like having a pail of cold water flung over you to make you see things as they really are. He was really touched when you said you were sorry. He's probably never apologized to anyone in his life. Is my nose like a rabbit's? Said Anne, worried. Well, yes, just a bit," said Julian, giving his sister an affectionate pat. "But a rabbit's nose is very nice, you know, very nice indeed." I don't think you'll have much trouble with Wilfred after this little episode. He didn't know that you had the heart of a tiger as well as a nose like a rabbit's. <laughs> Wilfred came out of the cottage in about ten minutes, dressed in dry clothes, carrying his wet ones in a bundle. I'll hang those out on the bushes for you to dry in the sun," said Anne, and took them from him, smiling. He suddenly smiled back. "Thanks," he said. "I don't know how they got so wet. Must have been pouring with rain." Julian chuckled and smacked him gently on the back. Rain can do an awful lot of good at times, he said. Well, Anne, we've brought you back a whole lot of goods for your larder. Here come the others. We'll carry everything in for you, with Wilfred's help too. Chapter Six, Lucas and His Tale. It was fun storing all the shopping away. Anne enjoyed it more than anyone, for she really was a most domesticated little person. A real homemaker," said Dick appreciatively, when he saw how neat and comfortable she had made the loft where the three boys were to sleep. Just about room for the three of us, plus all the baggage in the corner, and how good the larder looks! Anne looked at her well-stored larder and smiled. Now she could give her little family really nice meals. All those tins, she read the names on them. Fruit salad, tinned pears, tinned peaches, sardines, ham, tongue, a new cake in that round tin, big enough to last for at least three days. Biscuits, chocolate wafers, good old Julian. He knew how much she loved those, and George did too. Anne felt very happy as she arranged all her goods. 
she no longer felt guilty at drenching poor Wilfred. Indeed, she couldn't help feeling a little thrill when she remembered how she had suddenly turned into a tiger for a minute or two. It was fun to be a tiger for once. I might even be one again, if the chance arose, thought Anne. How surprised Wilfred was, and Julian too. <laughs> Dear poor Wilfred. Still, he's much nicer now. And indeed, he was. He was most polite to both the girls, and as Dick said, he didn't throw his weight about nearly so much. They all settled down very well together in the little cottage. They had most of their meals out of doors, sitting on the warm grass. It was rather a squeeze indoors, for the cottage really was very small. Anne enjoyed herself preparing the meals, with sometimes a little help from George, and the boys carried everything out. Wilfred did his share, and was pleased when he had a clap on the back from Julian. It was glorious sitting out in the sun high up on their hill. They could look down on the harbour, watch the yachts and the busy little boats, and enjoy the wonderful views all round. George was very curious about the island that lay in the middle of the harbour. What's it called? she asked Wilfred, but he didn't know. He did know, however, that there was a queer story about it. It belonged to a lonely old man, he said. He lived in a big house in the very middle of the wood. The island was given to his family by a king, James II, I think. This old man was the very, very last one of his family. People kept wanting to buy his island, and he had some kind of watchman to keep people from landing on it. These watchmen were pretty fierce. They had guns. Gosh, did they shoot people who tried to land, then? asked Dick. Well, they shot just to frighten them off. Not to hurt them, I suppose, said Wilfred. Anyway, a lot of sightseers had an awful fright when they tried to land. Bang, bang, shooting all round them. My granny told me that someone she knew, who had a lot of money, wanted to buy part of the island, and he had his hat shot right off when his boat tried to land. Is there anyone there now? asked Julian. I suppose the old fellow is dead. Has he a son or anyone to follow him? I don't think so, said Wilfred. But I don't know an awful lot about it. I tell you who does, though. One of the groundsmen on the golf course called Lucas. He was once one of the watchmen who kept visitors away from the island. It might be rather interesting to talk to him, said Dick. I'd rather like to walk over the golf course, too. My father plays a good game of golf, and I know something about it. Well, let's go now, said George. Timmy's longing for a good long walk, even though he ran all the way down to the village and back today. Walk, Timmy, walk. Walk, walk, said Timmy, and leapt up at once. Walk? Of course he was ready for a walk. He leapt all round George, pretending to pounce at her feet. Wilfred tried to catch hold of him, but couldn't. I wish you were my dog, he told Timmy. I'd never let you out of my sight. Timmy ran up to him then and gave him a loving lick. It was astonishing how he seemed to like Wilfred. Nobody could understand it. As George said, Timmy is usually so particular about making friends. Still, Wilfred is nicer than he was. The five, with Wilfred too, went up the hill, crossed over the road, and ran along the top and climbed over a stile. They found themselves on one of the fairways of the golf course, not far from a green, in which stood a pole with a bright red flag waving at the top. Wilfred knew very little about the game of golf, but the others had watched their parents play many a time. Look out! Someone's going to pitch his ball on this green, said Julian. 
and they stood by the hedge to watch the man play his ball. He struck it beautifully with his club, and the ball rose and fell right onto the green. It rolled to within about a foot of the hole in which the flagpole stood. Timmy ran forward a few steps, as he always did when a ball rolled near him. Then he remembered that this was golf, and he must never, never touch a ball on the fairway or on the green. The players passed by and went on with their game. Then they disappeared to play off another tee. Well, let's see if we can find Lucas now, said Wilfred, crossing the fairway to where he could get a good look over the course. You'll like him. There's not much he doesn't know about the animals and birds here. I think he's a wonderful man. Wilfred stood on the slope of a hill and looked all round. There he is, he said, pointing to where a man was trimming up a ditch. See, down there. He's using his bill hook to make things tidy. They went down the hill towards the ditch at the bottom. I bet there's an awful lot of balls in that ditch, said Wilfred. Hey, Lucas, how are you? Afternoon, young sir, said the groundsman, turning towards them. His face was as brown as a well-ripened nut, and his arms and shoulders were even browner. He wore no shirt or vest, and his dark, deep-set eyes twinkled as they took in the five children and the dog. He held out a brown hand to Timmy, who licked it gravely, wagging his tail. Then Timmy smelt Lucas all over, and finally lay down with his head on the man's feet. Ha! said Lucas to Timmy, and gave a loud, hearty laugh. Think I'm a-going to stand here all afternoon, do you? Well, I ain't. I got work to do, old dog, so get up. You're a right good un you are, a-laying on my foot so as I can't move a step. Want me to stop and have a rest, don't you? Lucas, we came to ask you something, said Wilfred. About the island in the harbour. What's its name? And does anyone live there now? We can see it from that little cottage almost at the top of the hill on the other side of the road, said Dick. It looks awfully quiet and lonely. And so it is, said Lucas, sitting down on the bank of the ditch. Timmy at once sat up beside him, sniffing him with pleasure. He put his arm round the dog and began to talk, his bright eyes going from one to the other of the children. He was so friendly, so completely natural, that the children felt he was an old, old friend. They sat down too, sniffing the smell of the gorse bushes nearby. They smell like coconut, thought Anne. Yes, just like coconut. Well, now, said Lucas, that island's always been a mystery place. It's called Whaling Island by some folks, because the wind makes a right queer wailing noise round some of its high cliffs. And others call it Whispering Island, because it's full of trees that whisper in the strong winds that always blow across it. But most of us call it Keep Away Island, and that's the best name of all, for there's never been any welcome there, what with the dark cliffs, the cruel rocks, and the dense woods. Lucas paused and looked at the listening faces round him. He was a born storyteller and knew it. How often Wilfred had listened to his tales of the birds and animals he met during his work on the course. Lucas was one of the few people that the boy admired and loved. Do go on, Lucas, said Wilfred, touching the man's bare, warm arm. Tell us about the rich old man who hated everyone and bought the island years ago. 
I'm telling the story my own way, said Lucas with great dignity. You sit patient now, or I'll start my ditching again. Sit like this dog, see? He don't even twitch a muscle, good dog that he is. Well, now, about this rich old man. He was so afraid of being robbed that he bought that lonely island. He built himself a great castle right in the middle of the thick woods, cut down about a hundred trees to make room for it, so the story goes, and brought every single stick and stone from the mainland. Did you see the old quarry on this ere golf course as you came along to me? Yes, we did, said Julian, remembering. I felt sorry for anyone who sent a golf ball there. Well, young sir, out of that quarry came the great stones that the old man used for his castle, said Lucas. Tis said that big, flat-bottomed boats had to be made to ferry the stones across to the island. And to this day, the road through this golf course is the one made by horses dragging the great stones down to the water's edge. Were you alive then? said Wilfred. Bless you, boy, no, of course not, said Lucas with a great chuckle of a laugh. Long afore my time, that was. Well, the stone house or castle, whatever you like to call it, was built. And the old man brought to it all kinds of treasures, beautiful statues, some of gold, it was said, but that I disbelieve. Oh, many's a queer tale I've heard of what that rich old man took over to Whispering Island. A great bed made of pure gold and set with precious stones. A necklace of rubies as big as pigeon's eggs. A wonderful sword with a jewelled handle worth a king's fortune and other things I disremember. He paused and looked around. Julian asked him a quick question. What happened to all those things? Well, now, he fell foul of the king of the land, and one morning, what did he see landing on the shores of his island but ships of all kinds, said Lucas, enjoying the rapt attention of his audience. A lot of them were sunk by the wicked rocks, but enough men were left to storm the queer stone castle in the wood and they killed the old man and all his servants. Did they find the treasures the old fellow had collected? asked Dick. Never a one, said Lucas. Never a one. Some say it was all a tale. The old man never did bring any wonders there, and some say they're still there on Whispering Island. Myself, I think it's all a yarn, but a good yarn at that. Who owns the island now? asked Dick. Well, an old fellow and his wife went to live there. Maybe they paid rent to the crown for it, maybe they bought it. But they didn't care for anything except for the birds and the animals there, said Lucas, picking up his curved bill hook again and hacking lightly at some briars. They wouldn't allow nobody there, and it was they who kept the gamekeepers with guns to frighten away sightseers. They wanted peace and quiet for themselves, and for all the wildlife on the island, and a fine idea too. Many's a time when I was there with the other keepers, three of us there were, many a time I've had rabbits gambling over my feet, and snakes gliding by me, and the birds as tame as canaries. I love to go there said Wilfred, his eyes shining. 
I'd have a good time with all the wild creatures. Can anyone go there now? No, said Lucas, getting up. Not a soul has lived in the old stone castle since the old man and his wife fell ill and died. The place is empty. The island belongs to a great nephew of the old couple now, but he never goes there. Just keeps a couple of men on the island to frighten off visitors. Pretty fierce they are, so I've been told. Well, there you are. That's the story of Whispering Island. Not very pleasant. A bit grim and ugly. It belongs to the birds and beasts now, and good luck to them. Thank you for telling us the story, said Anne. The old countryman smiled down at her, his eyes wrinkling, and his brown hand patting her cheek. I'll be after my edging and ditching again, he said, and I'll feel the sun warm on my bare back and hear the birds singing to me from the bushes. That's happiness enough for anyone, and a pity it is that more folks don't know it. End of Disc 1